All right, everybody, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast, and this is part two with the great Todd Radom. Uh, if you listened to part one, you know that uh, he and I uh, had some pretty pointed opinions about Major League Baseball and National Football League attire in the 1970s, and in fact, uh, we spent so much time talking a- a- about that that we didn't even really have time to get to the uh, uh, professional hockey leagues of the 70s or professional basketball in the 70s. And for that matter, we didn't even have time to get into the World Football League and and the uh, USFL. So today we are going to pick up where we left off with part one of uh, uh, our podcast together. And we're going to talk a little bit of baseball and we're going to talk a little bit of professional football to get started. And then we'll seg over into hockey and basketball and kind of put an excellent point on our uh, magical mystery tour through 1970s and 1980s uniforms and whatever the heck else comes up. So uh, join me in welcoming back to the podcast for uh, a second go-round today, Todd Radom. Todd, how are you, my friend? All right, Ricky. Thank you for having me back. And, you know, truly, if, if, if uh, the 70s are a decade that, that launched a billion words, and uh, a billion interesting logos and uniforms. And, yeah, this deserves two parts. So thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to have you back. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we, we have the opportunity to do this again because it's once you, once you get going on the topic of logos and jerseys, uh, it's, uh, the, the time gets away from you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so passionate about the subject matter. And you get two guys together who have strong opinions about this stuff, and uh, there's just there's no way we could have fit it into one. There's just no way. Right. And, and you know, it's kind of a, a paradox in a certain sense because we're talking visuals. We're not looking at them. And, you know, there's something kind of uh, weird about that. But it's <laughs> definitely a topic that, that like I said, it's, it's huge and expansive. And, you know, there's, there's just so much good stuff to discuss. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll begin with just a, a little bit more baseball because I've got to tell you, spring training uh, is is underway and baseball season is, is upon us as we tape this episode. Um, and the Arizona Diamondbacks have uh, a, a rather interesting look that uh, we could call it innovative. We could call it a, a, a bit of a departure from uh, your traditional baseball uniform and what uh, the other major league clubs are doing right now as far as their collective look. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on uh, the Diamondbacks' new look and sort of this move that they're making in what I would call kind of a bold direction? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, this is the second podcast I have been asked this question on about in the last week or so. Uh, you probably know I do the, the ESPN Baseball Tonight podcast mm-hmm. uh, with Buster Olney, and we sort of teed up the coming season uh, with a discussion about the changes for this season. Uh, and it's, it's just, you know, this is fascinating. I'm going to tell you what I, what I told him. The Arizona Diamondbacks are not the Yankees, they're not the Cardinals, Red Sox, or Tigers, or Cubs, and therefore, if any team is going to, you know, branch off and become the uh, Oregon Ducks of MLB, you know, the Diamondbacks can take that, that chance. So, you know, 
I'm very interested to see what happens once the uh, once the real season happened because I think that the the uh, you know what they what they're doing goes beyond this much discussed pattern on the pants and shoulders and sides of the uniforms and tops of the caps, right? Because they're going to be wearing really super dark gray road uniforms, the likes of which we really, we really have I don't think ever seen in Major League Baseball, and they're going to have eight different sets of uniforms they kind of go way beyond the the pirates of the late 70s right and uh i think there are going to be inevitable uh snafus when it comes to mixing and matching these 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 pieces but it's a bold experiment and uh listen love them hate them or whatever we're gonna have to see what this looks like i will say that uh derek hall and and uh you know those guys over there they you know they're smart people and uh they're taking a chance and it's going to look very different. Um, and let's see. I think, like so many things, it could be a very trendy notion uh, mm-hmm. that that causes them to roll this out. And trends are inherently, uh, you know, they are trendy, and that means they come and go. What this is going to look like two, three years from now, I think is anybody's guess. But I think it's going to be super interesting to see them on the field. I definitely agree with that, and, and you're right, certainly about the dark gray. I, I saw it the other day for the first time, and was was really struck with. It just looks. It just this is a this is an incredibly profound statement on my part, but it just looks dark. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you know that that dark gray thing, uh, graphite. The Blue Jays almost went with that for their road uniforms in I think 2003 or 2004. Um, but but uh, did not pull the trigger on it, and this is a scheme that has been increasingly popular in the world of college sports, where you know uh, crazy looks go. I mean, not that this is crazy, but I think it's going to provide. You know, we we want contrast, especially uh, you know for night games, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you know, listen, the the optics of 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 our uniforms are really different than. They might be even a couple of years ago, and this is because of the, you know, the fact that everybody in the world has high high definition uh, televisions that were, you know, I'm going to watch MLB TV on my iPad in just stunning resolution, and we're starting to see lighting. This is like we're really going off the tracks here, right? But you're starting to see LED lighting in Major League Baseball stadiums. All that's going to contribute to us really seeing things, I think, in kind of a different way. So maybe they're on the, the cutting edge of a movement that other teams are going to adopt, or maybe this is going to be all their own. I don't know. It's going to be it's going to be interesting if nothing else, right? Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I'm interested to see how it how it uh, grows on me or or doesn't. First impressions being what they are. I'm, I'm interested to see what I think by the time we get around the All Star break and we've kind of seen them cycle through uh, uh, many of their combinations. So it's it's interesting to see. And in a league the size of uh, Major League Baseball, there, there's 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 room for uh, for creativity and some variety, and it'll be interesting. Interesting to see uh, uh, what people ultimately kind of decide that they think of it, and and whether, as you as you know, whether or not this kind of becomes a, a bigger trend. I wonder if mix and match uh, uh, is is a thing that is uh, really going to continue to take off. Yeah, I wonder. And, and let me just move it back for a second and and state something that you know we, we there there is this this tyranny of the internet and there is a sea of 
snark out there when it comes to any kind of change, right? Very, very true. Anything. And there's this, like, you know, there's this chattering class of critics that are very often sanctimonious in their absolutely knowing that they are right and everyone else is wrong and you know it's great i mean this is the polarization of our society in a in a in an innocent microcosm let me say this though i think that you know the the optics of baseball are rooted in tradition you and i talked about that last time but without some kind of experimentation we never would have had the joy that 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 we discuss about the you know the 75 Astros rainbow <laughs> uniforms yep. were the Oakland A's of that era, and you know if if everything was rooted in tradition, you know every team would be you know uh, look like each other. And come on, yeah. this is you we, know sports is about fun. We wouldn't have and wanted so, to see Twitter and uh, the internet comments if it had existed uh, at the time that those jerseys debuted. I guarantee you. I think yeah, and you know we are actually seeing some. I think some some uh, dead-on comments about these uh, already, and the you know the fact that the pants look like they've stepped in something. I mean, there's no question about that. But I think that like everything else, you know, we need some retrospect. We need to see what these things look like in in uh, the the uh, real-world context, uh, and that includes. You know, some night game in in L.A. in uh, the middle of May uh, to see what those grays look like, uh, see how they get mixed and matched, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, nothing nothing here is absolute. It's not black or white. Yeah, bottom line is is it's given us an opportunity to talk about Major League Baseball uniforms, and, and, that, and that can't be all bad. Um, yeah, exactly. They, they've done something very smart here, if nothing else, in that they really have, you know, pushed design to the forefront. Uh, whether we like this design or not, I mean, it's up to people to judge. But uh, but it gets us talking about the optics uh, in, a, in a, a valuable way, and you know, that's uh, that's all good. All right, so a little bonus baseball talk for you here as we kick off uh, part two of, of, of the Todd Radom uh, Super Seventy Sports Podcast. Let's uh, let, let's talk football. Let's go back to uh, the era that that we're focusing on, nineteen seventies, uh, the the world football. League, the Upstart uh, League, and it's interesting as we as we look at the 1970s. Major League Baseball was the only one of the big four sports that didn't have a, a, a competitor uh, at that time, and, and and the World Football League was uh, uh, not uh, as lengthy as the as the World Hockey Association or the American Basketball Association. Certainly, the least successful of of those three uh, leagues, but definitely left uh, an indelible mark for a lot of people who uh, were young at that time, who were who lived in some of those cities, were fans of those teams. Uh, what, what are your recollections of the of the uh, sh- short, uh, uh, glorious time of the of the WFL? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I had mentioned to you on the first segment of our of our discussion over here that uh, my dad was kind of a, as I term him, a creative jack of all trades. And so when the WFL happened, this is 1974, 75, in there, you know, at that time he was doing some design work, and one of his clients was actually the New York Stars of the WFL. And uh, he was a big Giants fan, and Babe Perilli was the, the coach of, you know, there was a connection there. and mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and I'll tell you what, I remember being, so 1974, I was 10 years old, 
he would bring back stacks of programs, right? And I still, to this day, have one particular program with every one of those helmets right on the cover. And I was just fascinated, absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, I am still very jealous of my brother, who actually did attend a couple of uh, WFL games with my dad at, at Randall's uh, Stadium. Uh, or Downing Stadium on Randall's Island in the middle of uh, the East River in New York, out by Rikers, out by, right, I mean, by the Triborough Bridge. Really, like, dumpy facility at that time. <laughs> the, the, the WFL was a decidedly uh, second-rate operation in many respects, but the graphics were pretty slick, and they kind of spoke to young America, I think, uh, in a way that maybe the stodgy NFL, you know, they were way ahead of their time. Um, I, I think that you're right about that, and they tried some uh, uh, some you know really cutting edge kind of stuff. You think that the uniforms that teams are wearing in the Pro Bowl today for, and this is for like the 26 people who still watch the Pro Bowl, but <laughs> but if you look at the kind of wild stuff that they're doing in terms of the the the, the uniforms, you know, when I was a kid, it was pretty much everything was the, the NFC was blue and the AFC was red, and it was kind of classic looking in terms of the look and now they push the envelope, but uh, the uh, uh, the WFL and their all-star game, I forget what they called it, but uh, th- they had players wearing different uniform combinations uh, by position, if I recall yeah, correctly. And, and if, if I'm recalling this correctly, they had a yellow and blue football. Their commissioner, Gary Davidson, or the founder of the league, was uh, you know a, a founder of uh, the World Hockey Association and might have even been involved with the ABA. I should know this, but I don't right off the top of my head. And just from a visual perspective, um, I'm pretty sure that a single designer who was not a football fan created every one of those logos and every one of those uniforms kind of approached this from uh, an outsider's perspective. And, you know, this is a league with sort of a rebellious mentality to begin with. And there were some interesting markets there. And uh, also interestingly to me was the fact that you had uh, these, these, again, very seat-of-the-pants seat of operations move overnight. In the case of the New York Stars, well, they decamped to Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, seemingly overnight. I mean, it was literally in the middle of the season, and they stripped the Stars off those helmets, and, you know, bam. I mean, it just changed. And you had these, you had some really great iconic icons. You know, uh, if you think about it, uh, the 70s were sort of right in the wheelhouse of the golden age of corporate logo design. And I think many of the WFL logos really uh, dovetailed with that. The, mm-hmm. the, the Birmingham Americans, that's a, that's a great logo. It's sharp. It, you know, reduced well. We use the word iconic, but it really was. It was very easy to easy to recognize. The Philadelphia Bell, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it transcends to color as well. I know we talked about the the Southern California sun with these magenta things that you would never do today. But it was the 70s, and people were doing all sorts of things that maybe they shouldn't have been doing, but they did. And, uh, right, you know, it's like... <laughs> but it was, it was really a refreshing, uh, re- refreshing contrast to what at that time was a very stodgy-looking NFL. And, and, that was, and it was a very audacious beginning for the, the, the WFL. I mean, of course, they, they raided the Miami Dolphins. Uh, the, the Memphis Southmen <laughs> picked up Zonka and Jim Kick and Paul Warfield. Yeah. And, I mean, 
mean, they really they really dove in. I mean, I think it. I think the Birmingham Americans were. Uh, uh, I, I can't remember all the, the the circumstances because I'm just kind of bringing this up off the top of my head. But they they attempted to to bring Kenny Stabler ab- aboard, I believe. Um, and somehow or another, that didn't happen. Uh, but uh, j- just a, a really interesting league that, uh, unfortunately, is is really not well documented or remembered. Uh, I think, for, um, unless you are old enough that you actually have a, a recollection of it. Yeah, I mean, it was really sort of the blink of an eye, uh, just those couple of seasons there. Um, and, yeah, you, you noted all those guys that, you know, they, they really rated the NFL for talent. Okay, so the checks bounced all over the all over the country. But they had a team in Hawaii, the Hawaiians, right, with this great logo. Uh, they had teams in football hotbeds of places, like you mentioned, you know, traditional college markets like Birmingham and Memphis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there are stories behind that, too. Um, there was originally supposed to be a team in Toronto, the Northmen. They moved them down south. They become the Southmen. They had a team in Jacksonville years before the, the Jaguars came into existence. And then they went, you know, head-on in bigger markets like Detroit and Philadelphia. And, you know, I mean, so, yeah, it's it's a really, you know, just a fascinating story. And, and, and the, the visuals, like I said, really reflect the, you know, this real specific moment in time that uh, far outweigh the memories of the games, right? Uh, no question about it. And, and of course, it, we move on to the 1980s and the, the uh, upstart league that people uh, remember better uh, today is the, is the USFL. And uh, as, as you and I were mentioning before we started to record with the uh, political climate being what it is and Donald Trump being in the news so much, uh, his connection to the USFL is, is quite memorable. And so uh, uh, we're kind of uh, somewhat hitting on current events here when we talk about the USFL. Uh, there was a great documentary, Small Potatoes, that I would recommend for anybody who, who hasn't seen that that talks about the uh, uh, th- three-year run of the, of the United States Football League. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the, on the visual presentation of, of that league? And uh, when you reflect back on the United States Football League uh, from a design standpoint, what really jumps out for you? Well, I think, you know, if you're going to contrast the, the USFL to the predecessor WFL, even though they're, you know, it's not exactly a, you know, an apples-to-apples comparison, you know, to me, just from a visual perspective, it's really evident that, like I said, one person was responsible for the WFL graphics. They all have a certain sensibility and just the, the weights of the lines and some of the colors and, you know, it all kinds of hang, hangs together. Whereas, uh, you know, remembering watching the, the USFL, there were several franchises that were trying to look establishment. You mentioned the Generals. That was a pretty staid, uh, you know, NFL look for them uh, compared to, you know, or the Washington Federals, which incidentally is maybe the worst team name in the history of sports. <laughs> Can we agree on that? Like, you know, Not particularly inspired. I, I would agree. No, no, no. And, you know, we, we all have 
aspire to be, you know, something great and, you know, to be a federal bureaucrat while it might be, you know, safe and, you know, it's not, it doesn't, you know, little kids, I want to be a federal. And they had odd colors, too, for a team from the district, but I digress. But, um, but yeah, there was some great, you know, weird stuff that came out of there. The the uh, Wranglers, the Arizona Wranglers, right, with an mm-hmm. unusual color scheme and, you know, uh, gradations involved in the logo. This kind of stuff. So, you know, certainly very memorable. And, uh, you know, I really, I I remember watching those games on TV. I have a good friend of mine from college who is actually now the, and has been for many years, the New York Jets team photographer uh, who shot at uh, USFL games. I still have some, you know, lineup cards and stuff like that, ticket stubs from those days. It was fun and refreshing, but uh, not quite as out there as, as the WFL. If we're talking best USFL helmets, what, what makes your short list? Wow, I got I got to dig deep on this one, <laughs> and I'm probably going to omit some things. But you know, the the, the breakers that was yes, like the that's it. like right, you know, color interesting color scheme, very professional looking, you know, visual package made a lot of sense. The other end of the spectrum, which really looks incredibly dated uh, in every possible respect, was that powerhouse, the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars, mm-hmm. right? With mm-hmm. that chunky, like, split lettering, look kind of like the Blue Jays, and that repeat pattern of that the star thing, which really echoed what was going on with the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, and just a really weird kind of magenta and yellow color scheme, really just bizarro world over there. But right, there were there were a couple of other memorable ones that that I think kind of would have held up. But those those two, and then like I said, the new you know being living in New York City at the time, certainly uh, the New Jersey Generals, nothing special over there. But you know they were trying to look like an establishment franchise. They go out, they get Herschel Walker, Brian Sipe, uh Doug Flutie. I mean, you know, they were sort of like playing at the Meadowlands. They fit right in with. You know, with the surroundings. Yeah, and I, and I think the generals had a pretty had a pretty good look for for what they were going for. I always like the uh, I always thought the Houston Gamblers had a pretty decent yeah. helmet. Uh, yeah, totally you know, I, I, I like that. Yeah, but the Breakers is my is my favorite. Uh, they're just some, yeah, it's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. it wasn't overdone. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Oakland Invaders too, right? I mean, it's just. There, there are some very memorable graphics that emerged out of there, and if I was sitting in, a, in front of a computer, which I am not, I could pull up some more. But, but uh, you know, just again, the, the, the visual legacy of, of the USFL uh, is probably, you know, I, I don't know that it necessarily had legs compared to what they were trying to accomplish. They were really, you know, very audacious in their ultimate, uh, you know, aspirations. But, uh, but it was a lot of fun, too, very similar to, to that alternative league, the, you know, the, to, to the WFL. Yeah, very true. I, uh, I, I've always enjoyed, and I get a lot of uh, mileage out of this on Twitter. Uh, the, the Tampa Bay Bandits—they were—they uh, were going, they were using that Burt Reynolds connection for all it was worth. Oh, they milked that totally. Yes, <laughs> they were slapping bird on everything, and I and I jokingly, uh, I jokingly said that they they missed their opportunity by not just putting Burt Reynolds on the helmet. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you could really, you know, you could have distilled Burt's, you know, entire face down, you know, the the mustache and you know the Smokey and the Bandit hat at at that point in time. I mean, come on, there's something very graphic about that that would have just worked perfectly as a logo. It could have worked. 
I, I, Bert, I'm sure Bert would have been uh, fine with it. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. You know, just uh, right in right in his wheelhouse, no question. All right, so we we so we kind of tied up our loose ends uh, from from part one, and and now I, we'll, we'll move into the discussion of uh, the, the the other two big four sports. Um, and and I, I'll, as my guest, I'll give you the choice here. Do you do you want to start with basketball or do you want to start with hockey? Well, I'll tell you what. I want to start right where we should be starting with the with the World Hockey Association. All right. Uh, because as a as a young kid, the visuals of the WHA warmed up my Northeast winters here. Uh, first of all, you know I've said this many times before. Uh, you know, much as I love baseball, much as I love football. You know, there's something about the hockey crest and the hockey sweater that really lends itself to a total visual package, a really memorable thing. And the, you know, the, the, the visual traditions of, you know, the, the original six franchises are just indisputably important. But, you know, in the 70s, well, and, you know, back it up because it kind of like, you know, dovetails right into the into the 70s. You know, the, the, the second six, the, the expansion clubs of 1967, had some beautiful graphics in the NHL. The North Side, right? Flyers, which I think is a very underrated modern classic. Mm-hmm. And they inevitably influenced what I was getting at, which is the WHA. And the logos of the WHA continue to reverberate even today uh the oilers substantially wear you know something pretty close after you know prying away from their original look right you know there's something very spontaneous and joyful about the the graphics of the wha and uh and you know people will will point to the hartford whalers which you know they were always the new england whalers in wha days but the hartford whalers logo of the nhl when they came in and you know, when the league, uh, a couple of those teams were absorbed, often discussed as one of the great sports logos of all time. Well, I, I'll tell you, I I have a note here on my uh, uh, legal pad in front of me as I was scribbling down a few things before uh, I got you on the line today, and I just wrote down next to the Whalers, I have parentheses, G-O-A-T, question mark. Yeah, I, you, you, you could make you could make an argument, uh, and this certainly isn't the only logo that somebody could make a, a, a decent argument for. But you could make an argument that the Hartford Whalers logo, after they moved to the NHL, the redesign, I believe, in 1979, yep. that that could be the best logo in the history of professional sports. Well, you know, it's such a subjective discussion, as these things always are, but I think it's undeniable that there is something uh, wonderful in play with regard to the Hartford Whalers' identity. Uh, you know, the use of negative space, doing a lot with very little effort, making it look easy, um, really vibrant colors. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, I've been to Hartford plenty of times. Uh, I don't actually live too far away from Hartford. And if I close my eyes, uh, I think of, you know, the intersection of Route 91 and Route 84, and I think of the Hartford Whalers, and I think that that's due in large part to the fact that, you know, they came up with a a real-world class identity um, that really would never be done today. And, and again, I'll I'll move it, you know, back to the Flyers uh, in a similar way. You know, the, the Flyers logo is effortless, and it denotes motion 
with very, you know, with great ease. And it has a P in there for Philadelphia. And it has a little puck in there, right? And it's totally, uh, you know, orange and black are not the colors of Philadelphia. So I kind of like look at those two as, as uh, you know, brothers from another mother. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's that's a great way of putting it. I uh, I would put the Flyers on my short list of, of best NHL logos. Uh, I, I I wouldn't even uh, hesitate in saying that. Uh, a few others here that I, I wrote down that are interesting to me for what reason uh, for one reason or another, and I'd like to kind of get your feedback on some of these. Um, one of my favorites um, is the old school uh, uh, Los Angeles Kings. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, it is an incredibly detailed depiction of a crown. But uh, in those years, if you saw that purple and gold, you thought of the kings and you thought of their, you know, their fellow uh, tenants in Inglewood, the, the Lakers, right? And I think of Marcel Dion. And I think, again, I think of those uniforms. They were really memorable um, and just kind of like uh, captured this, you know, Kind of, I mean, purple and gold. Would it talk about a, a bold statement, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes, they, they've realized, uh, you know, a couple of Stanley Cup championships in in monotone, essentially. But the Kings are going to be uh, throwing back to those uniforms in honor of their 50th anniversary next season. They're hosting the NHL All Star Game, so I think we're going to be seeing more of those. And uh, really kind of like, you know, it's interesting because they moved away from that look just as Wayne Gretzky arrived and, uh, you know, basically, you know, sun Sunbelt hockey arrived uh, in, a, in a way that it, it, it never had succeeded before right at that time. So, yeah, I think the, the purple and gold and the crown get short shrift because of all of those things. Um, in terms of NHL classics, and of course, you start thinking original six. The the Montreal Canadiens look is is timeless. I think uh, the Detroit Red Wings, uh, another logo that just instantly is just so evocative to me. The New York Rangers uh, logo as well. Um, I mean, in terms of the really old school, you know, if you go back, say the original twelve, are are, are there any teams in the original twelve that that you feel misfired? Because for me, going back to that era, it would be a, I don't know, there's so many that are so good from yeah, that era. Yeah. Uh, you know, were, are, are there any, like, what for you out of the original 12 were maybe, uh, if not bad, if not bad, maybe just a, a little more on the weaker side of the spectrum? Well, I mean, you know, you talk about the original six and you can't touch those because they're steeped in history and... I, I know we've used this word in our last discussion, and I use it all the time. You know, if, if sports and the visuals of sports are about tribalism, well, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs in blue, and by the way, they got this really right in, you know, moving backwards toward a more complex Maple Leaf next season, right? Mm-hmm. Against the Red Wings in red or the Canadians, which, you know, their emblem and uniforms really stand for an entire culture in French-speaking Canada. Um, you know, they all have their merits. I don't know that there's uh, there are too many stinkers. The Oakland-slash-California Golden Seals were weird. I don't think there's any question about that. Charlie Finley was wrapped up in there at one point in time, and that contributed to that. And, of course, then they, you know, become the Cleveland Barons, and then they merge with the Minnesota North Stars and are consigned to uh, the dustbin of history. But, you know, there, there, there are pluses on all those. And, and 
Let me interject and say something. In When I was in college for two years, I lived in the YMCA on the corner of 9th Avenue and 34th Street, one block away from Madison Square Garden. And there were many Wednesday nights or Thursday nights that there was nobody around and nothing to do. And I would walk a block over and I would scalp a ticket to the Rangers for $3 once the first period was underway. And I settled in that arena. I bought myself a cheap beer and got a crappy seat. And I got to see those uniforms in action. And it inspires me today. It really does. And uh, even before then, I remember being, uh, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old, taking taking Amtrak up to Boston, visiting with some friends of my parents who, uh, you know, lived in, lived in the suburbs of Boston. I remember saying, you know, I would love to go to a Bruins game. And these people were probably in their early 50s at the time, didn't have kids. And, you know, my parents' friends said, yeah, you should just, you know, take the commuter train down there. Go, get a ticket. <laughs> 14 years old, I did that. I sat with the gallery gods at Old Boston Garden. Oh, my goodness. And I remember seeing the uh, the Bruins play the Atlanta Flames. I uh, still have my ticket stub. And, again, those, you know, again, white white uniforms at home in those days. And it uh, just brings back such memories, and the visuals accompany the memories. That's what's great about sports. Yeah, the, well, I'm I'm jealous right now. If we, if I would love to, I would if we can build a time machine, just just send send me back uh, uh, there and let me take in a couple of those games with you at the garden. I mean, that's that's uh, that is that yeah, is great you know stuff. I, I I went to art school in Manhattan, and I had a friend of mine, my friend Al Guerra, uh, who was a big Rangers fan, and had like these partial season tickets with a friend of his. He lived out in Long Island. Rangers fanatic, still is to this day, and I'm mentioning his name. But uh, he had these seats all the way up in the blue seats, up in the nosebleeds at the, at the garden. It's since been reconfigured. Uh, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. But uh, it was in the front row, and there was a wall in front of us that was, I don't know, maybe you know, two and a half, three feet high. And let me tell you, back in art school, he had this enormous portfolio that he would carry his stuff in. You could put an 18-pack of old Milwaukee cans in one of these portfolios. <laughs> And we would sit there with the wall in front of us. But, yeah, again, so great teams, great games, great uniforms, and, uh, you know, really fostered a, this this love for the sport of hockey that I'll confess to having lost since those days because, uh, you know, I just don't go anymore. And um, I've had the, the privilege of having attended the NHL All-Star Game the last couple of years, and it really has sparked uh, a great appreciation for the sport, the culture of the sport, and the visuals in a way that I've kind of missed. Uh, so there you go. Well, I, I will tell you something that has that I have started to appreciate more in the time that uh, I've been running Super 70 Sports uh, on Twitter, and that is the various looks through the 70s and 80s of the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, wow. Yeah, in the um, last couple of weeks, especially, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it, it's just the, the people have a strong reaction, uh, usually, to Vancouver Canuck Post uh, from the 70s and 80s. Now, I like the uh, sort of the original Canucks look. I I, I enjoy the uh, the C with the hockey stick. I, I it, to me that was kind of a kind of a classy look, but. Then they make the departure into 
you know, some people say they look like a choir. <laughs> some, some people say that they look like some sort of doomsday cult. I may have been the person who said that. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the look that they had was, uh, very, very d- different <laughs> than, uh, kind of anything else that was going on at that time. And, and even today, it's so visually, uh, striking. What do you think of that particular iteration of the, uh, Canucks uh, uh, fashion. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I will. Uh, I will probably receive some scorn and hatred for this, but I was never a fan of the original uh, stick and rink logo. I thought they were really bland. Um, How dare you, sir? I can't well, believe. You know, <laughs> My, my mother always told me that opinions are like, I'm not even going to say it, everyone has one. I always but, tell my students that opinions are like elbows, everybody has a couple. Well, uh, she referred to a, a, a more busy part of the anatomy, and, and she really, you know, still says it to this day. But uh, at any rate, having said all that, the, the Canucks moved to the, 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 the big V's and eventually to the flying skate jerseys. I mean, that was the logo. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, yeah, it's a, it's it, you know, so bad. It's good kind of a thing in certain respects, but but um, but boy, talk about personality and talk about a great color combination too. They went away from this very passive Pacific blue and green, which I get, and and you know, I really loved in the case of the Whalers, and I you know, kind of you know, appreciate what that is now. Mm-hmm. But for the Vancouver Canucks. I did a blog post a couple of years back uh, that you can take a look for on my website, toddradom.com, and it had to do with that change for the Canucks, and they actually brought in marketing people talking all kinds of smack about, you know, black is an aggressive color, and they spent tens of thousands of dollars on this stuff, and they brought in psychologists and consultants and all this BS, and yeah, that's what came out of that process, but what also came out of it was an undeniably weird and to me very wonderful look <laughs> it is a wonderful look I I will tell you I used to not like it I, I, I really didn't and then it just started to I don't know I kind of started to get it I guess over time and now it's one of my yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just remember like watching the, the you know when they were in the finals against the Islanders in like 82 maybe right and, and yeah and it's like damn look at you know Harold Snips, I think, was on that, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, like, yes. Tiger Williams, whatever. I mean, it's like just, they looked like nobody else. And, you know, in, in my mind, being in New York, 3,000 miles away from Vancouver or whatever it was, Damn, it really, you know, it made it made a very distinctive impression. It really did. It really did. You weren't going to mistake them for anybody else, that's for sure. Uh, no, and and there and there too. Like you know, we started out talking about the Diamondbacks. If you're the Vancouver Canucks in you know 1979 or whatever it was, and uh, you know you have every license in the world to do something different. You're not tied to tradition. God forbid the Chicago Blackhawks did something like that. They would deservedly get spanked. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you know. It made, made all the sense in the world at the time. Well, if we're talking, uh, uh, let's go back to WHA for a minute. Uh, if we're talking defunct teams from the WHA, are there are there any that you look back upon in in terms of uh, their their uh, d- uniform design with uh, uh, maybe a little bit of extra affection? Cincinnati Stingers, great logo. 
young Mark Messier breaking in, 18 years old or whatever, with Cincinnati Stingers. And at the same time, in the in the Midwest, the Indianapolis Racers. I total. I have a decal with an India. I have a set of WHA decals that I wrote away for. Right. I still have the original envelope. I should tweak oh, this new. You should scan that, this thing in. That's a retweet right there. there. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, and and those logos because I was a you know a nerdy kid with a love of logos. They all made an impression. The Whalers, you know, but those really, like I said, the the. the there were goofy ones in there, the Calgary Stampeders and, you know, all this stuff. But the but the, the Cincinnati Stingers, very, you know, again, a really super clean, almost, and I say this without it being bad, a very professional, polished look uh, and a memorable color scheme. And, you know, far more memorable than the team itself, right, than anything they ever did. True, <laughs> true. So those, those couple just like, boom, right off the top what, of my head, what really do you, stand out. What do you think of the uh, Minnesota Fighting Saints, the, uh, the, freckle, yeah. the freckled kid with the, with the wire halo? Well, wonderfully <laughs> weird, almost, you know, Bill Veck-esque, yeah. right? At a time when you could have goofy mascots, we we I, I'm pretty sure talked about that that St. Louis Brownie Louie from the 1950s. Well, you know that that Fighting Saints kid is the uh, offspring of Louie and <laughs> you know the, the the Milwaukee Does or something like that. I don't know, but uh, it comes from a different area era that you you would not see today. And uh, yeah, really charming and kind of like uh, you know the, the WHA was like the little little engine that could, and he seems like the perfect mascot. All right, well, that's a great segue uh, into probably my all-time favorite sports league in some respects, the American Basketball Association. Um, the uh, I have always thought that the Denver Nuggets, and I can't remember this this little guy may have come come along actually after the merger, but the uh, the, the the happy little miner who who looks yes. who looks like a, a cabbage patch kid with a beard, sort of <laughs> holding you know? a big nugget of gold. Yeah. yeah, holding a big nugget of gold. He's he's so chubby and little and harmless and cute, and he, he would never happen in a billion years. <laughs> and he's got a goofy hat. Today. I actually have a, a t-shirt yeah. with that. Uh, I love it. And the, and the letter forms that are attached to him that they wore on their uniforms are just these kind of like weird, tubular, you know, seven, very, very 70 looking, right? I mean, yes. I totally, totally agree. I loved him. And they had those uniforms with the, with the pan... Uh, you know, and the pickaxe, right? Yes. Highly, yes. you know, intrinsically, wonderfully weird, you know, just so much personality, which is, which is what we sometimes are, you know, these, everything that goes into this stuff today, and I'm part of this, you know, decisions are made, it's not very spontaneous, they can come sometimes go through focus groups, I doubt that that guy went through any kind of a focus <laughs> No, that was one of those where uh, somebody came up with that and somebody just green-lighted it, I think, is how that yeah, went Yeah, 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 put it on there and, and put a pan on the uniform, you know, put a, <laughs> put a pickaxe and a pan and we'll, let's play, you well, know? Let's roll. Uh, the Oakland Oaks, the, 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 the happy little acorn man with a big nose. Uh, yeah. You know, right well, you know he, he actually carried over from the Pacific Coast League baseball Oakland Oaks from the 1940s. Mm. Yeah, see, there and, you go. There you go. Yeah, and, and I think that there was some type of, you know, legal, uh, you know, some, some type of, of recognition at a certain point that, 
you know, either either both minor league baseball and the NBA being the you know inheritors of the ABA, uh, you know, visual heritage. So somehow they both use them side by side. I should actually know this, and I somehow have been involved with this in the past. But yeah, he actually comes from there. But you know, any ABA uh, discussion really begins and. I don't know that it begins and ends, but but it has to include the spirits of St. Louis. Ah, the spirits of St. Louis. Uh, what a what, what an interesting group of characters uh, uh, that was. Uh, no doubt about it. I had the pleasure of, of interviewing uh, Gus Gerard uh, for this podcast recently, and uh, to hear him tell some some of the stories. Uh, uh, in some cases, stories that you just wouldn't have believed were were true unless you knew that you were getting a first hand account. Uh, and he lived to tell the tale. And Barnes, he lived to tell the tale. And and the folks who uh, listened to that podcast. We'll remember Gus's story of Fly Williams falling asleep on the on the team bus, and everybody get, departs off of the bus. They have no idea that Fly is asleep on the bus, and the, the bus driver just takes it back to the the parking garage, parks the bus, and Fly wakes up uh, uh, late at night. The bus is is locked inside a parking garage, and the only thing that's there are some German shepherds that are that are that are watching the garage, and Fly's got to figure out how to. <laughs> how to get off the bus uh, w- without getting eaten by a dog? But uh, these kinds of crazy things that uh, that, that you would never imagine uh, happening in in professional athletics uh, today. But I love the Spirits of St. Louis uh, logo. It's a great logo. Uh, the uh, New Jersey Net, I mean uh, the New York Nets. Uh, in in those days, of course, I I wish that the Nets would would go back to the the classic red, white, and blue look because I think I'll I think I'll always associate that with the Nets uh, no matter no matter how long their their current uh, uh, black and white look endures. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, let me move back for a second and tell you a very brief story. I knew a bartender at my favorite tavern and living in Hoboken, New Jersey in the 80s, who uh, was a, uh, uh, an Irish immigrant who uh, maybe he liked to have a couple of beers every once in a while and told me a story about going to a Red Sox game when it used to be very sparsely attended in the, the early 80s and maybe having a couple and maybe falling asleep in the bleachers and uh, maybe he woke up uh, with lunging German shepherds, you know, and, and all the, the lights were off and all that stuff. But anyway, the, the Nets, yeah, everything that the Nets are today, which is monochromatic and corporate and contrived, the original Nets were not. And, you know, you, Dr. J and his ascendant afro and those great star and stripes uh, uniforms and, you know, my I had a W. I had a, uh, a a Nets basketball, red, white, and blue basketball, growing up, and yeah, you know, really fun and and just great, great, great stuff. And and I do uh, I do agree. I think the Nets need something a little bit more than what they have now. And uh, I don't know if they necessarily need to throw back exactly to that, but damn, it's a lot more fun than what they have. How, how genius was the red, white, and blue ball? Well, it was genius, and there you go. I think that's, that's if I'm not mistaken, Gary Davidson, who, uh, you know, again, this is a, a time in which Charlie Finley was, you know, uh, pushing forth a, an orange baseball for night games. And talk about just an instantly identifiable symbol of your league that set it apart from the NBA. Um, it's just brilliant. 
they're like marketing genius. I mean, right? At the, the, the most visible, most visible thing there. And it lives to this day. To this day, I, it's uh, it's iconic. Um, and, and as a kid, too, I mean, especially if you're younger, and I mean, obviously it's visibly, visually striking to, to anyone compared to a regular leather basketball. But to, to a kid, I, I remember I had one when I was a kid, and I thought it was like the greatest thing in the world to see the to see it spinning in the air when you you know put rotation on the ball was was fantastic. And I, and I still get a kick out of it when I'm watching the NBA three point contest. When they get to the money ball or whatever, you know, totally there's just something, yeah, totally there's just agree. something fun about it. Um, you know, as, as far as the ABA goes, uh, a few other things that kind of come to my mind: the, the Memphis, the well, the Memphis franchise. Uh, the you were talking earlier about Charlie Finley, and yeah. of course, everything that Charlie Finley had his fingerprints on, be it the Seals or be it the A's, be it the the Memphis Tams, uh, yeah. the uh, the color scheme. Was the was that familiar uh, green and gold and and then uh, uh, you know sometimes uh, in fact to one degree or another a little bit garish. Uh, I know the Tams had the uh, I believe they, they wore green jerseys and yellow shorts or I, I could be mistaken, but I know it was a yeah, two tone look. Their logo was that little hat, and <laughs> and you know it's it's here's a fact. Uh, there there are two reasons that that have been alleged why Charlie. Finley loved the green and gold. Uh, one reason was supposedly because it was his wife's favorite colors. But uh, secondly, uh, supposedly he was a Notre Dame fan, uh-huh. Midwestern guy, right? Chicago, Irish, uh, American. And I've actually been in contact with his niece, uh, who remembers those days well. I don't know that she had a definitive answer on that. But yeah, you're, you're right. Everything he touched turned to green and gold. And those were you know, unusual uniforms to say the least. Certainly not designed by any slick focus group or not a whole lot of thought that went into them beyond just, you know, they should be uh, fun and, and uh, we should look like uh, we're unique. <laughs> and and uh, speaking of unique and speaking of Memphis, the Memphis Sounds, uh, which I believe was the, 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 the final uh, version of the, the Memphis franchise uh, in the ABA, uh, one of the things that is interesting to me about them is that the names on the back uh, of the jerseys were in cursive. Yeah, that's a really unusual, unusual thing. And as you know, the uh, Memphis Grizzlies have been wearing these as throwbacks. And they don't, you know, they use this off-the-rack font uh, that that doesn't quite, uh, you know, like like that. The original sounds, letter forms are very, like, funky and mm-hmm. it's really not script. But uh, very, like, you know, just I, I can't even describe them. You'd, you know, you'd have to see them. Right. But, yeah, they were super, super unique. Uh, the numbers were similarly wavy and wiggly and wonderful in that way. And, yeah, just really distinctive. And, yeah, you think about it at the time, as hard as it is for, you know, younger listeners to believe, you know, the NBA was not a major force. Very famously, the... The, the NBA Finals in the late 70s were aired on tape delay late at night on the East Coast. And so there was a point of entry for the ABA. And when you talk about just marketing to a different generation and really trying to break through the, you know, uh, stayed, uh, you know, what, 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 what was pretty, you know, pretty buttoned down NBA at the time, the ABA succeeded, if not enduringly, but in a, in a very memorable way 
visually and from a marketing perspective. Any other ABA clubs that, uh, for for good, for bad, for for any reason, stand out for you from a uh, logo or uniform d- design vantage point? How about the Floridians? Yes. Right. Thank Black, you. Magenta stripe going down the side. Thank you. The Floridians were owned by, uh, I believe, uh, Ned Doyle, who was a uh, Doyle Dane Burnback, advertising executive from New York. This guy understood branding and advertising, and, you know, they were a little garish but sophisticated. And interestingly enough, I discovered several years ago that uh, unless somebody proves me wrong, uh, here we are in, you know, mid-March, the the, the uh, Floridians uh, participated in the first uniform celebration of St. Patrick's Day in 1971 when they stuck nameplates with an O, uh, yes. In front of all of their their right, so I, I have seen. I, yes, you are yeah, you're correct. I did a blog post about it several years ago. Um, so you know, really, again, very distinctive stuff right there. I don't know. I mean, just boy, we could just roll down like the, the home of the ABA, and there's something charming and interesting about just about every franchise. But you know, when they they forced a merger. Uh, I mean, the Kentucky Colonels, right? Interesting look, very, like, loopy letter forms and numbers. You know, they forced this merger, and they became part of the establishment, but, you know, there are still little little glimmers that survive from there. The Floridians are so interesting because uh, their jerseys just had the, the red and, and magenta vertical striping on one side, the number on the front, and nothing else, just the number. Yeah, striking and stark, and and listen at at the at the complete other end of the spectrum, a really enduring classic look that is associated with probably the most uh, steady, successful franchise in sports. You know, of this era, the San Antonio Spurs came out of the ABA, black, silver. Um, you know, right out of the gate. You know, this is a team that had you know moved around. Right, they were the Dallas Chaparrals. And they moved to San Antonio, become the Spurs, and fundamentally they look now pretty much the same as they did back then. So they bucked the trend and somehow, you know, came out of there with this, again, very enduring look. Very classic. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. classy and very classic, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so true. Uh, and and I, and I have to get a word in for the uh, they they didn't have a very long shelf life in the in the ABA, and I'm not even sure if they if they made it into the 70s. But the Anaheim Amigos. With the, I don't think with, they did, yeah. with the with the sombrero on the basketball, and I have to say, Todd, I this is a gen, this is just a general philosophy that I have. We, we need more sombreros <laughs> in life in general, but uh, but as far as logos go, I think just anywhere that you can work a sombrero in, you know, particularly uh, perching it on a basketball as a as a Johnny uh, uh, a bit of headwear uh, is a uh, is, is that's that's a good move. Well, I, I think that there was probably a five-year span where hats and sports equipment intertwined to make for great logos. The Texas Rangers come into existence in 1972. Need we say more? Like a big, uh, you know, 10-gallon hat on top of a, a big baseball? Or was it a small baseball with a small... I have no idea, right? And the aforementioned Memphis Tams, whose entire visual identity is centered around headwear. So, you know weird, quirky, very perfect 
perfect for the seventies. Perfect metaphor for the seventies. So bizarro, <laughs> bizarro for sure. Uh, let's bounce over to the to the NBA side of the equation uh, in the nineteen seventies. The NBA, the establishment league, uh, no three pointer, no uh, uh, the, the red, uh, white, and blue ball, obviously, and and uh, and sort of no shenanigans, uh, at least in comparison to the ABA, where everything was about. Uh, coming up with whatever fun or crazy promotion that you can come up with to, to generate interest. The NBA was uh, uh, was was the uh, the conservative league at that time. Uh, well, well, uh, let me just interject with with two words: Walt Frazier. <laughs> yeah, no, Walt didn't get the memo uh, uh, about, no. about that. No, you're, no, you're no, right. No. Walt, Walt he was, was an ABA man and an NBA man's body. He he was he was he was a he was a man that was he was a fish out of water uh, in the NBA at that time. And I guess uh, maybe we could put Pistol Pete uh, in that in yeah. that same category. Uh, what are the uniforms uh, for you in the NBA in the 1970s uh, that would make your your list? of the uh, uh, best-looking attire? Well, you know, the Sixers were always cycling through these uniforms, especially toward the later part of the 70s, which fascinated me as a, you know, girl growing up because it was like, oh, look, it's it's October and the Sixers have another new uniform, <laughs> and, you know, and, and they always featured stars and some kind of something, but they had those bicentennial city warm-ups that I totally remember with a big, uh, you know, with a big Independence Hall in the back, just so interesting to me um but you know again red white and blue kind of still buttoned down in certain respects and it really worked for them what else the pistons were changing uniforms constantly it seemed like in the mid to late 70s uh, again also red white and blue so nothing like crazy but how about the sonics when the sonics you know finally settled upon their look that they won a championship in uh with that arc you know, right on the jerseys, and mm-hmm. there's green and gold. There's something different, and Jack Sigma, you know, looking all and and you know, we could go on and on. The the Clippers, you know, which which uh, they eventually find themselves, the Clippers in San Diego. How about the Kings with their powder blue? There were a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, maybe not enduring looks, but but really interesting out of the NBA in those years, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I uh, in in some of those uh, clubs that you mentioned, the the Clippers. I was a I was a fan of the Clippers' uh, light blue look in the in the late nineteen seventies. I was a fan of the of the, of the Kings' uh, light blue look as as well. I uh, I like the Bucks jerseys uh, from the late seventies, early early to mid eighties. Yeah, the Irish rainbows. Yeah, yeah, the Irish rainbows. Oh, I love their logo too. You know, oh. a great little. I mean, just a classic. You know, wonderfully whimsical look that wouldn't make it today. And of course, the Bucks did a rebrand. You know, last year, and yeah, they very smartly you know embraced their green heritage. But you know, we we lost him years ago, uh, back in the early '90s, and we'll never get him back. But he's part of their heritage, and I know he's still embraced up there by uh you know. But the, but yeah, the Bucks that was a very, very like you know unique. Unique is not always good, but in their case, it worked. And the Blazers, who were always just black and red, you know, seeing Bill Walton out there with the you know, and there were some great teams, of course, in the late seventies that, that to, to really embrace. And 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 again, a very classic logo, the likes of which you know all those lines denoting movement, no different than the Flyers or the Cincinnati Stingers. 
one of the trends that I, I guess it happened enough that you could consider it a trend. We we were talking about the uh, the, the vertical uh, striping going down one side of the Floridians uh, jersey and shorts, and you had the the Atlanta Hawks of the early seventies, the uh, the I don't know sort of lime green <laughs> era yep. of the Atlanta Hawks. Yep. They had a similar thing. The the Pacers had similar uh, uh, striping. Uh, the the bullets did too. The bullets did too. That was kind of a thing for a while, but it passed, and and you don't see that. The bullets uh, early 70s uh, uh, uniforms are quite interesting to me because again, they're similar to the Floridians in the sense that for a while, at least one season, and I think for for more than one season, they didn't have the team name on on the jersey either. It was on one of the legs of their shorts. Yeah, and it was at a time that they were, you know, they they were shifting from Baltimore to outside of the uh, District of Columbia, right, to Landover, Maryland, and they were sort of having this identity crisis in that respect, too. But, uh, you know, you talk about the bullets and you close your eyes and you think of a uniform, you think of those Elvin Hayes, you know, that they sort of emulate today. Just great uniforms, red, white, and blue. What a great celebration of the nation's capital. And, you know, here's, you know, they, they, they had a certain amount of flamboyance, but they were really grounded in, in, in a, you know, in a, in a great, great look that wasn't so over the top that it was weird. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And, th- and those were those were sharp jerseys. And if you like those, you pick up any tops basketball set from the mid mid to late 70s and i think that uh, about 90 percent of the photography was was done at bullets home games so they're ever west Unsel is everywhere i one day when i have time on my hands i'm going to document how many basketball cards west Unsel appears on because i have i have have a theory that west Unsel may be on more tops cards uh, than than anyone else ever. <laughs> <laughs> and how about the Phoenix Suns uniforms of those years too? You know, I like those. Franchise, I like those. The, the starburst uh, look on the sides of the shorts. That, yeah, and, and you know these weird Wild West looking letter forms. But you know the the purple and orange, and you know I'll say that I I did the logo for the 2009 uh, NBA All Star Game in Phoenix. And it was the only opportunity in my life, my professional career, that I ever had, had an opportunity to work with that color scheme. And I have to say, it was really liberating, uh, and it spoke to a place and to a franchise and to a fan base in a very specific way. Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting when you when you you, you put it that way and, and, and look at it in that context. I think. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, they own that color scheme. But yeah, I remember the the '75 NBA, you know, that that great triple overtime. Oh yes. Epic against the Celtics, and you get the the Boston Celtics, the most you know conservative look in you know maybe all of sports, or maybe you know along with the Yankees then and now, and uh, and the Phoenix Suns, which were not again them too, like the Bulls, not necessarily flamboyant, but. A uh, very marked contrast in terms of color, and uh, yeah, I mean, really, 
just a very interesting look of that time. I don't know that uh, that they were great looking. Again, sort of like standard weird <laughs> old west letter forms that that didn't really have a whole lot going on. But but you know, I, a unique sort of a memorable look. I was a fan. I was a fan of that look. Uh, you know the the uh, Walter Davis, Alvin Adams, <laughs> Paul Westfall, uh, Gar Hurd look. Uh, what about the New Orleans Jazz? I. I I, th- that's one that, that comes to me. I think of that jazz logo, and of course the jazz yeah. logo has they brought it back now in Utah. But uh, I, I always thought that the jazz had an interesting look in the seventies. Yeah, very seventies, and those Mardi Gras colors, purple, green, and yellow, which really you know had a reason to exist there at that time. They had great warm ups. Uh, if you if you look, uh, and of course you know you mentioned him before, Pistol Pete. You know, associated with this streaking comet of amazing talent and legend that, that, that they're associated with. Yeah, kind of weird. I don't know that they necessarily hold up today. I don't understand the reason for them being in Utah other than, <laughs> you know, the fact that they're kind of cool and old, but, you know, kind of, I don't know, irrelevant in a certain way. But, yeah, they were, they were an expansion team from 74, I guess. And, you know, if you look back around the same time, just preceding them by a couple of years was the Cleveland Cavaliers who cycled through a couple of different uniform sets. But wine, gold, all those stripes that you discussed with the with the Bucks they yes. had going on there. And talk about your fish man who was a fish out of water in the NBA became even more of a fish <laughs> out of water. Walt Frazier, when he was exiled to Cleveland uh, after the glory years of New York, yes. and thankfully he's made his way back here, uh, back to uh, back to the garden. But yeah, just uh, looked so wrong in that yeah, uniform. Yeah, so wrong. Walt Frazier in Cleveland is sort of like... Uh, uh, I think I think Bill Simmons uh, uh, once said that uh, his his opinion on Rocky Five is that Rocky Five didn't happen, and, yeah. and that's kind of my opinion on Clyde Frazier in Cleveland. I, I just prefer to think that that didn't happen. Yeah, it's kind of like you know sometimes our greatest athletes are sort of you know exiled to uh, Elba for the final throws of their career. Harmon Killebrew is a royal, for instance. I mean, you know there are all kinds of examples of this. And the guys who retire, uh, you know, with one franchise, the Tony Gwynns and Cal Ripkins of the world, or, you know, I don't know, you can, you know, there there are plenty of them, but it uh, doesn't happen so much. And Derek Jeter, I guess, would be, you know, today, you know, it would have been a, would have been a shame to have seen Derek Jeter retire as a Cincinnati Red or a Washington National or something weird like that. We need to, we need to, uh, again, I, you know, it's got to be, it's got to pass the test of close your eyes and remember this guy and this uniform. Uh, and Walt Frazier with the Cleveland Cavs does not exactly uh, fit that whole deal. It doesn't do it. It's right there with Johnny Johnny U as a Charger and Joe Namath as a as a Ram. It Ram, just, yeah. It goes totally. against it goes against everything that that we would like to to think. Um, as as we get ready to wrap this up, I, I, I'm wondering, and, and this is a this is an incredibly difficult question. And I know oftentimes I'll look at you know pick a year. What what are we? We're 2016. Let's go back. And let's just say 1976. If we looked at the big four leagues in 1976 and we look at the big four leagues in 2016, overall, we I think you and I would agree some teams have a better look now, some teams had a better look then. Uh, how does that all wash out? Do you think that 
do you think that if we if if, if we had to decide overall whether the uh, logo and, and and uniform combinations were better then or better now, who comes out on top? Well, you know what? If we had this discussion with a uh, 19-year-old uh, individual in the room, they would come at it from a different perspective. Yep. If you sat a New York Yankee fan down with a, uh, I don't know, Atlanta Braves fan or, you know, so I think it, it, basically what I'm trying to say is, like, one size cannot fit all for several reasons. Um, you know, it depends on, you know, our, 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 our love for sports uniforms is inevitably tied to our memories and yep. to our age and to our fan experience and to our nostalgia. And I always talk about the fact that, uh, you know, sports logos and uniforms can represent comfort food to certain fan bases. So, in other words, if you are the uh, Baltimore Orioles of several years ago, you went back to, you know, this big, wonderful pile of mashed potatoes with gravy and butter <laughs> in the Orioles' smiling bird that yeah. disappeared for 22 seasons or whatever that was. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's a hard thing to balance. It really is. Uh, I will say this. I think that the, you know, the world of uh, 70s sports uniforms across those four leagues that you reference are, and beyond that, again, to what we talked about today with these, you know, leagues that came and went. You know, there's a certain amount of fun, of spontaneity, and of just, you know, a lack of market speak and focus groups. And uh, there's something wonderful about that, that that's lost today. Uh, sports should be fun. Uh, sports is about, you know, being part of a community. And uh, if I'm part of a community that has the 1977 Toronto Blue Jays logo, that's a good community that I want to be a part of, even though I have nothing to do with Toronto. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. No, that's... That's, a, that's a, that is a, a very well said. Uh, he's Todd Radom, and uh, if you haven't listened to the first uh, part of our conversation, uh, just know that this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. I'm just a guy with opinions. <laughs> uh, but Todd, well, you know what my mother said about opinions. But in your case, <laughs> you have good, solid opinions that I respect. <laughs> well, you're 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 much too kind. I don't know your mo- your mother might shoot it a little more straight with me. Uh, she, we you should have, have her on the podcast sometime. <laughs> there you go. We'll have we'll have the the Todd and his mom cast. Bring her that, on would be, that would be epic. It would, you would get off the chart like this. Would you? You'd get stars on you know iTunes or whatever. That would like you know. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Well, the, well, you know, down the road, when, when, whenever, uh, whenever you come on again, you know, we've got to remember that and let mom come on and get her due. Uh, she <laughs> was a big Knicks fan in the seventies. Love Walt Frazier. The world comes full circle. The circle of life. <laughs> the circle of life, indeed. So uh, the, the the website is is toddradom.com. Go there. Uh, Todd has a lot of interesting thoughts on various subjects. You'll enjoy going to that site. You can learn more about Todd and. and what he does of course uh if you don't know uh the the man has designed uh just a just an incredible amount of terrific logos for for various franchises and in in various uh uh functions and and events uh around sports uh through the years and uh it's just incredible And, and 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 at his website you can take a look at those things and and see just exactly uh who on this podcast today uh has talent and who has a big mouth 
So, uh, so, so, Todd, I can't thank you enough. Sometime down the road, we'll give it a little bit of time, but I'd love to have you back on again. Uh, you know, uh, to, to discuss more of uh, of this and, and and whatever else is going on in the world of sports. You're you're a gentleman. You're a scholar, and uh, I just can't thank you enough. I've enjoyed both of these uh, podcasts with you equally, and uh, look forward to doing it again at some point uh, down the line. Uh, Ricky, I can't thank you enough. We are kindred spirits for sure, and you know this conversation provides yet another affirmation of of, a, of an adage that I always dip back to, and that is, you know, sports fans are, are passionate about their logos and their uniforms, and uh, brings us joy to talk about this stuff. And and again, in a in a complex, polarizing world, I'll talk about the Hartford Whalers logo seven days out of the week, <laughs> and twice on Sunday. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. It. And it's time well spent whenever you do All that. Right. All right, Todd, thanks so much for coming on. You take care, buddy, and, and, and I'll catch you soon. All right, Ricky. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. See you later. Oh, how much fun was that? Todd Radom, fantastic guy, terrific guest. Big thanks to Todd for coming on the podcast again. That's two out of the first seven episodes. I'm going to have to put Todd on the, on the payroll. Uh, what's that? I'm being informed now that I don't have a payroll because I'm broke. So, Todd, sorry, can't get you on the payroll, but would love to have you back on again sometime down the line, and I'm sure Todd will do that. Uh, Next week, very excited about my guest, Darnell Hillman, the man who was voted as having the greatest Afro in the history of the American Basketball Association. And if you know anything about the ABA... You know he had a lot of competition for that title. Darnell's going to come on. He's going to talk about his career from college through the military. He had a very interesting background. He was actually drafted out of the Army by the San Francisco Warriors and the Indiana Pacers. Went on to win a couple of ABA titles with the Pacers. and A very interesting guy. And He's involved today with the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which is a group that is doing terrific work to help out ABA players from the 1970s who maybe have fallen on hard times. So uh, Darnell will talk about that a little bit as well, and, and maybe we'll even talk about what we can do to help out some of our heroes from when we were kids. So thanks so much to everybody for listening to the podcast today. It feels good to be back. I'm going to have to go hang out with the Sweat Hogs now, I think. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Darnell Hillman's the guest, and I'll see you again next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Well,